Hello, everyone. Today, my co-host Aaron and I speak with the investor known as Bluegrass Cap on Twitter. The conversation here meanders more than usual, but most of what we talk about relates to ratings, standards, brand status. So that's a theme that holds us all together. If you uh, if you enjoy this conversation, we'd appreciate it if you threw up some ratings and reviews on iTunes. Before we begin, a disclaimer, this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for any investment decision. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security. The securities discussed on this podcast may be owned by persons being interviewed. Before making any investment decision, please consult an investment advisor. Bill? Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. I go in the gym today. I don't know how old this guy was, but he's an old guy. He's like, we're in the free weight area and he just kind of walks in looks around, goes and gets a jump rope and just starts jump or, uh, jump <laughs> roping, you know, like right in the middle of like free weights. So, like he's like literally almost hitting people trying to do like squats and stuff. People are like, what are you doing? <laughs> Bro, do you even lift? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I was like, it was like, you don't want to stare, but then yeah. I was just like, so amazed by it. I just like, I had to watch. I just wanted to see what was going to happen. Like he's going to hit somebody. <laughs> All right, so I'll kick things off. I'm here with my co-host, Aaron, as usual. Today we have a special guest, Josh, otherwise known as Bluegrass, at BluegrassCap on Twitter. And for those of you guys who don't know Bluegrass, he's uh, he's kind of a big deal. <laughs> he has many leather-bound books, and his apartment smells of rich mahogany. Exactly true. I take pictures of libraries and post them on my wall. He's kind of like a pillar in the in the subset of the FinTwit community that likes to uh, analyze businesses and talk about stocks. He does, you know, a really great job sort of drawing connections between seemingly disparate areas, and he's incredibly prolific on Twitter. So it's a real pleasure to have him on. You know, a few weeks ago, prior to this podcast, Bluegrass and I were kind of going back and forth on possible uh, topics here. And he kind of nudged things towards a conversation about standards, brands, uh, ratings, trust, status, all that stuff. It's a big topic. So Josh, I mean, I guess what sort of uh, drew your attention towards towards this area? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, we talk offline a little bit, but uh, I would just say a couple of things. You know, I'm a huge fan of your of your Scuttleblur product. Oh, um, thanks. I, I talk to people all the time about it, and I, I'm just amazed. You know, some of the people in our little niche community aren't aware of it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's awesome. And uh, Aaron, uh, I've really enjoyed uh, listening to some of your commentaries and especially reading your letter. And I would say, uh, you know, at one time, I th- kind of thought of myself as a, more of a special situations investor. And um, you know, look at some of your recent returns. I think I'd probably do better just giving you a little capital. And but, uh, yeah, <laughs> dude, send it my way. Send it my yeah, way. <laughs> follow through, man. Come on. <laughs> Big talk. Um, no, David, you said this is a big topic. Um, so we'll see where we get to it. But uh, I guess frame it this way. I just keep noticing this trend. I guess it sort of mirrors technology generally. Um, it's driving acceleration away from the physical world and towards an intangible one. And not to get too meta here, but just trying to unpack this thing and maybe start at the high level and go lower. Yeah. When we like humans were mostly worried about shelter, you know, like over our heads, having a house, finding food to eat, that kind of stuff. 
you know, people valued wealth in the terms of, uh, you know, buildings you owned or the farmland you controlled, you know, that you could use for productive purposes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those were the primary stores of value. And they were like currencies, stores of wealth. And now when we have this billionaire class of successful uh, musicians, uh, athletes, bankers, lawyers, whatever superstars on social media, they're not worried about owning a home necessarily. And they're not, they're focused on different things. And wealth, wealth can be measured, I think, in different ways for this group, uh, where things like the control over your time or your health and your social status are more important than necessarily, you know, the exact size of your bank account. Things that are considered currencies are changing. It used to be hard assets, like I said, like land and farm animals, and then it was gold as a currency. And then it was um, like paper currencies backed by gold. And then it was, I guess now it's still paper currencies backed by trusting governments, uh, yeah. but it's, it's evolving um, to intangible currencies uh, backed by brand reputation, like a TripAdvisor hotel rating or uh, by data, your website's Google page rank, crazier stuff like uh, digital currencies that I guess we could say are backed by social status, uh, the number of followers of your Instagram account. And so thinking about value in that way, I wanted to draw attention uh, quickly to a few quotes from Eugene uh, Eugene Wei's awesome piece, Status as a Service, talking about kind of value and how it can interact with um, social status. Um, So three quick quotes and I'll continue on. He said, um, Mm -hmm. numbers lend an air of legitimacy and credibility. We have longstanding ways to denominate and measure financial capital and its flows, but we have no such methods for measuring the values and movement of social capital. The next quote I thought was, interesting was he said social capital is in many ways a leading indicator of financial capital and thus we should pay close attention to it and the final quote kind of wrapping that up and leading us hopefully into our conversation where we can dig into this stuff is he said that perhaps the easiest way to spot social capital is to look at places where people trade it for financial capital and and that social capital can be converted back into financial capital and depending on the relative value in both directions there could be an arbitrage so that's a lot of stuff but anyway um, and right. one more sidebar, I would say this, you know, sometimes um, when you think you're onto something like a really good idea and you tell somebody, you know, you just get that blank stare, um, it, it makes you, I don't know, second guess yourself, but also sometimes dig deeper. I was trying to tell this to my wife. I don't know if you ever use your wives as a sounding board. Mine's sometimes uh, good, sometimes uh-huh. not. But uh, she's asked me to explain this idea for this, some of the stuff we're going to talk about. I said, yeah companies put credit ratings on their investor presentations. And I said, I think that's just like people putting a CFA on their business card or having a country club sticker on your car. She asked me a question. She said, so the sticker, she said, is the sticker more valuable because of the country club? And I said, no, the, the country club has pricing power because people want to put the sticker on their car. Mm-hmm. I think these trends supporting the rise and importance of industry currencies, like rating systems, different perceptions of what's trustworthy, what's valuable, it's just important and interesting to think about if you're an investor today. But I certainly have a lot more questions uh, than answers um, as I've tried to think through some of this stuff. So some I just maybe throw out that we could talk about are um, why are some of these rating systems so much more important to the businesses being rated than others? For example, mm-hmm. why is TripAdvisor, and this is my perception, maybe I'm wildly off, but why is TripAdvisor usually a kingmaker for a local tourist destination but, you know, at least in my neck of the woods, like Yelp doesn't matter at all for like the status mm-hmm. of a neighborhood restaurant. Um, another question is, uh, why do consumers, so the actual people who use ratings, 
why do they put more value in certain rating systems than others? Um, mm -hmm. An example I was thinking of um, the other day as I was using uh, Uber, like Amazon reviews, I think are really valuable. Um, I think they can tell you a lot of stuff. Um, and people actually seem to think that because there's like a, at least from what I see, there's a wide variability, a few stars to a lot of stars. But it seems mm -hmm. like almost 99% are all of like Uber or Lyft reviews are all like five stars. Like everybody on Lyft mm -hmm. has like a, you know, 4.92 rating or whatever. So another question would be, um, why are some of these currencies long lasting? Like a credit rating, you know, just seems very durable, but then we can pull apart some other industry ratings that have been more ephem ephemeral like a Nielsen. Right. Uh, but the last question I would say is maybe, and maybe this is even the most important question is why are some of these similarly situated rating systems like actually good businesses while others are not? And the right. one that always yeah jumps out to me is trip uh, trip advisor is so important and vital like to a boutique hotel's reputation. And it's just as important, I think in that ecosystem as a Moody's bond rating is for like some, some small cap leverage loan, you know, issuer. But if you look at trips revenue model, you know, the revitalization is just kind of garbage while Moody's just keeps printing money. Yeah, those are those are great questions. I think there's a lot of ground to cover there. It might be helpful to categorize things in the, in the following way. So in any ecosystem, there are information asymmetries and transaction frictions that ratings and standards help alleviate. So, you know, bond ratings give us a way to easily compare one bond against the other. Mm -hmm. TV ratings let advertisers know how much to pay for an ad uh, ad spot. You know, restaurants, restaurant ratings help us determine, you know, what's worth reserving. Product ratings help us know what to buy. So bucket all that kind of stuff in the ratings as facilitators bucket. And then, and, and that in turn can be split up into B2B and, and consumer. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I think like somewhat distinct from that is sort of the, the social stratification aspect of, of ratings that you were referring to. Mm-hmm where it kind of plays into social networks. And um, and and you had some uh, Eugene Way quotes in there. He, he wrote a really good piece on that uh, a few days ago. And luxury also plays a key role in stratification. So we can sort yeah. of like loop into the into the conversation as well. And then and then just on that facilitator point, I think um, it's it's important to think about um, things are both that are both just like kind of um, that do facilitate it. But also then there's other companies that are more kind of like a barrier to entry. So, you know, credit credit rating agencies and, and insurance companies, I mean, you really can't do business without that stamp of approval. And so- Exactly. Um, yeah. It's like mandated by local governments. If you're going to issue a, municip a yeah, municipal bond, you have to be rated. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I have a little bit of personal history with this. Um, uh, you know, in a prior life, I was part of a team that started up a municipal bond insurance company uh, during the financial crisis. We obviously couldn't write any business until we got. Yeah, it's like the perfect time to start that. Well, that was the thought. Um, yeah, you know, it's incredibly complicated, but you know, we really could not write any business until you get that that um, stamp. That stamp, right? And that's a long, and especially at that point, that was a really you know arduous process to go through. Mm. With with ratings, sometimes the the system of ratings provides far more value than the actual individual ratings themselves because the ecosystem just needs oh, something yeah. to standardize on. Yeah, it do, like it doesn't necessarily matter That's what, great but it needs to be something, right? Yeah. So Moody's is a great example of this. So ostensibly, their value comes from the you know intrinsic merit of their credit ratings, but I don't know that anyone actually believes that 
Moody's is the authoritative voice when it comes to accurately assessing credit risk. And here, like, we're, we're mostly just talking about like this, the uh, distinction between investment grade and non-investment grade, because that's sort of the cutoff for regulatory mm -hmm. purposes and whatnot. I mean, I, I think if you just had a simple quantitative model where you, where you kind of input um, debt to EBITDA, debt to capital, free cash flow generation, industry classification, you could probably map to ratings with default rates that very closely mirror the historical default experience of like Moody's ratings, right? So I, I think like the agencies get it right most of the time, like any reasonably competent investment grade crossover credit analyst would. So the financial ecosystem essentially come to agree that, you know, we're going to use their ratings as a mostly right way to assess the degree of of credit risk for, you know, purposes of facilitating transactions and setting capital requirements and all that. It, it sort of like solves this coordination issue. And it's got to be a little bit more complicated than that, though, because they're not just doing quantitative stress tests or anything like that. I mean, they're also or sorry, they're not just like looking at existing credit metrics. They, they are doing quantitative stress tests and qualitative stress tests of the business. It's not fair, really, to just like, yeah, to say like, oh, you could just automate that. Right. So I'm not saying that accuracy is unimportant. I'm saying that Moody's rating this bond or that bond is not the source of differentiated value. It's really about the rating system. You know, right, right. The fact right. that the fact that most of us could probably do a reasonably good job as Moody's and, and so could a lot of other shops is sort of besides the point. The point is like they're too integrated into the financial plumbing. So like they're used to indirect indirectly. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really good point you're making. I was trying to think of some similar description in my head, you're, you're basically saying it's the network effect. And where I'm going with that is like, you know, there's all kinds of legacy like payment systems, uh, for example. And a lot of them, you know, we don't, I don't, I really couldn't explain to anybody like what's in Visa's pipes. I mean, it could be complete just, you know, sewage. <laughs> I don't know as far as, you know, the yeah. technology aspect of it, but it's like the network effect. So it's, um, everything's built on top of it and goes around it. So the, I'm sure Square, you know, has much better, you know, high, or Aiden, you know, quality tech. Yeah that if they were going to recreate the pipes from scratch or even JP Morgan. But um, yeah, yeah, so that's a good point. Like the thing itself is not really, it's part of it, uh, but it's really more the ecosystem uh, that, that they kind of control because it's an oligopoly in this case. Exactly. And so it, I guess the way it plays out is, you know, sort of the, the more issuers that get rated, the more established the standard becomes and the more critical it yeah. becomes for like the incremental issuer to be rated as well, because you don't want to be the guy to have like your bond stranded and, and sort of blowing in the breeze when everyone else is rated. You know, you lose out on, on this whole pool of buyers with regulatory constraints and people don't know what to do with your debt and you have to pay more to issue it. Yeah. I mean, we were also talking um, kind of offline about how Nielsen plays into this. And I was thinking, you know, when you're thinking about currency systems, Nielsen to me seems like kind of like at the lower end of the value spectrum where a lot of what they're doing is just kind of automated quantitative analysis. And then if you move up or if you move up the kind of value chain, you've got something like a Gartner or like Captera, which is you know a subsidiary of theirs. And that you have a lot more qualitative analysis that kind of ranks products it kind of gets into that value system similar to the credit rating agencies where it's like, you know, we trust this brand, you know, this brand approval. It's just amazing to me that, like, I mean, it's it's really not that much of an exaggeration to say that like Moody's played a pretty central role in the financial crisis. No. I mean, like, <laughs> securitization, it accelerated the mortgage production machine, but like the investment grade ratings on shitty mortgage backed securities is sort of what allowed this securitization machine to be funded. I also remember like an 08 and 09, like this atrocious dereliction of duty like fully came to light there were other credit agencies that sp that sprung up and tried to run a model where investors paid for the right. ratings to avoid like this obvious conflict of interest 
and like no dice, right? Moody's, it's sort of unbelievable. They're not only did they like survive the crisis, but they've just absolutely thrived. And it kind of like speaks to- Go, go back to my personal example where- in the midst of the GFC, when everyone's looking at Moody's and S&P and being like, you know, what the hell were you doing? We could not write any insurance policies without their stamp of approval. So it's like, you yeah. know, on one hand, they're being discredited by the market. And then on the other hand, you still can't participate. And it just shows you the strength of that. Right. A quick sidebar. I know from talking to you guys, all of us have kind of had, you know, professional experience in that time period of 08, 09. It was so invaluable yeah. and that could be a whole other podcast, but I just wanted to make that point. I feel like you kind of talk to people that are kind of pre and post that time period. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's a major marker, right? Like in a, an investor's um, yeah. a career. Yeah. I think you were really lucky if you got to work in the financial services industry and you're relatively young during that period. Like, you know, you had relatively pretty much not much to lose. Yeah. And it was just all experience to gain. You mentioned a couple of interesting companies. Gartner is an interesting one because I think there's actually a social aspect um, inside of that, inside of chief information officers and, you know, basically trying to keep up with the Joneses, yeah. so to speak. But maybe another one of you guys could talk about that. But I just was going to just make sure we highlighted um, Nielsen because I think it it has a lot of uh, interesting maybe takeaways or maybe not. We'll see um, from some of the things we're talking about. But a lot, I think, of what we're talking about or some of the important things we're talking about with this topic is scarcity. Mm-hmm. And when there's an explosion of something, um, whatever remains relevant, but is also scarce in that ecosystem is mm-hmm. valuable. Yeah. Um, and the exact, the exact opposite of that is what is Nielsen today, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was such a good business for such a long period of time. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but it was just a system or I should say a symptom of a broader issue, which was this just collapse of an overall supporting ecosystem for exactly, it. You mentioned yeah. the ecosystem of ratings. Well, the ecosystem around, you know, measuring TV ratings and eyeballs for TV just collapsed. And it also reminded me of something I think I read today and I forget the author's name. So I apologize if I'm quoting this and I don't mean to, but something the quote was, or the idea is something like, you know, most legacy moats were just distribution moats in disguise. And it wasn't obvious that there was like a distribution pain point um, in there that they controlled. So to summarize what I'm saying for Nielsen, you know, the thing, the thing being rated went from something of relative scarcity, you know, the underlying TV product, um, the number of TV shows you could watch and how you could view shows was, you know, three broadcast networks. And then it was 10 or 20 or 50 cable networks. And there were only so many shows. So some relative scarcity to today, just no effing scarcity, you know, at all. Netflix just has like a nuclear cannon spending money on content and, you know, Amazon right behind them. So if you're, I guess the summary there is, you know, if your whole ecosystem blows up, like it won't happen to the rating agencies, hopefully, because I'm an investor. But, you know, as long as, you know, people keep issuing bonds and the ecosystem is fine, I guess. Um, but if your ecosystem just blows up, um, you're and you're the like, you know, the currency or the rating uh, system in that ecosystem, well, you're just kind of. F. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So, so standards and ratings, they, they play like a coordinating function in an ecosystem. And so like a, a business ecosystem is configured a certain way and there are winners and losers. And, you know, like those who control the pinch point, like the, the point of scarcity, yes. um, as you would say. And, and then there are those who are modularized around it. And, and those configurations give rise to certain standards and ratings. And in fact, like the standards and ratings then reinforce the configuration that gave rise to it. That's meta. But that, like, you know, it, it seems like every now and then, like the balance of power 
in, in the value chain shifts or changes. And then like, so too do the viability of standards. And so it looks like Nielsen is kind of the, the casualty of that. Because I would say like linear TV, CPG companies that advertise their brands on linear TV, the, the referee right. that measures the content consumption and advertising reach of linear, all that stuff is part of the same crumbling edifice. The watch side of the business has long-term contrast with the networks who, who have like for such a long time tried to appeal to the mass market at a time when like technologies and like, uh, you know, like new platforms have, have fragmented things. Uh, fragmented like viewing patterns and they're they're like new ways of reaching consumers directly um, fragmented consumption patterns and so yeah i mean it, it speaks to like a broader reorientation of the value chain clean christensen talks about this right so how like there are shifting points of integration that uh, that kind of you know move the the surplus pool to like a different point in the value chain all right so now it's like mm -hmm. no longer you know four networks that bundle all this content it's you know netflix and amazon bundling the content and also like aggregating the audiences and then like you know disney and others are trying to do kind of the same thing and then like on the buy side it's no longer the these incumbent cpgs claiming limited shelf space and m monopolizing like mindshare through linear tv ads it's like these niche brands with online access to customers. And even more so, it's like, you know, Facebook, Instagram, and Google intermediating that access. So it's like, we know, we know like where the where the surplus pool has kind of shifted. You mentioned CPG. It's interesting to take that, to, to pull CPG out of it, or maybe use it as an example, consumer goods yeah. in general. I've just seen so many legacy brands really be destroyed, which is kind of the traditional, you know, what FinTwit or Wall Street yeah. Journal, the kind of, receive wisdom is, you know, all CPG brands are dying. That kind of death be accelerated by these trends. But then at the same time, I've seen a lot of other, you know, uh, categories of CPG, you know, for example, luxury that kind of stratifies us that is kind of a status marker accelerate and kind of go in the opposite direction, you know, based on these same trends. Yeah. So I, I just like to make a point on this, um, on like the CPG and then the Netflix thing, because I've thought about this also. And so you, you kind of had a few things going on. So the first is, you know, the prevalence of, of Facebook, Instagram, social media has basically meant that um, advertisers can now have, for the first time really ever, geographically targeted advertisements instead of doing it mm. to like a national scale. What's the old quote about 50% of your advertising? Oh, yeah. It's like uh, half of it works. I just don't know which half. Is that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, so, so, now, so now you can say, okay, I want to target in this very specific uh, niche. And then on top yeah. of that, you've also had the, the requirements for a physical presence have just evaporated, as well as the, you know, you know, the availability of out, you know, outsourced services. And so what has historically been a very capital intensive and also you know, expensive industry to operate in you know, those barriers have just gone away completely. And so that's why I think you're seeing a lot of, yeah. you know, just like regular, not maybe not the luxury brands, but, you know, the average brands are facing increased competition because, you know, if I want to start, you know, just look at like Bonobos, for instance, which came out of nowhere and took, created a real presence. Dave, to your point, you're seeing value shift from, you know, these brand or content creators to distribution and advertisers. You know, I think that's kind of been like interesting to observe. And then, you know, from a, uh, like a tangential point when you look at like Netflix and Amazon, you know, one thing is that like the increase uh, again with like um, social media, the barriers to entry to become a celebrity, I think have become a lot lower. And so you're not seeing um, before in order to get like national coverage, it would be, you know, very, very difficult. There was 
you know, scarcity of that, those positions essentially. And now anyone really can create national coverage if they have good content and, and play the system correctly. Thinking about through that lens, there used to only be so many celebrities. So it was obvious who they were. I mean, they were like, you know, but to your point, that's why, that's probably why there's this evolving function that's playing out. Uh, as far as social currency, that's one of the drivers. He's like, now we need more of a rating system because right, we don't know exactly. who the hell these people are. Are you a celebrity or are you right. not a celebrity? Like, do you deserve my attention or not? If you have a million followers, like I'm going to read in our world, that doesn't exist. But if you have 50,000 followers, I'm going to read your blog post. But if you have like, uh, you know, 25 followers and you're an egg, yeah. like, I'm not going to. But then also I think there's like um, so. implications for, for Netflix and Amazon. So or, or really any sort of content creator, you know, like the the cost to create that content has now fallen because, you know, they've shown that they can create create movies, TV shows without historical A-list celebrities. Yes, yeah, it's another instance of, you know, value shifting from maybe like the content owner to the distributor or the, you know, the advertiser. I don't really use the, the core Facebook app anymore. And there's nothing to do with like privacy or whatever scandal they're buffeted by it this week. I just don't like the product. And so like for news and topics I care about, right? I go to Twitter to see what's going on with my friends. I go to Instagram for like communications. I use WhatsApp and it just seems like whatever I'm looking for online, I can find a better version of that outside of the core of Facebook. And so I guess to, to frame it in terms of Eugene Way's point, so this concept of um, like proof of work, right? To to yes. build like social capital. There's this idea of like what kind of proof of work is really most efficiently distributed through core Facebook today, I guess is my question. So if, if I have a talent that I think can be used as proof of work, there are a lot of other platforms out there that can convert that into social capital more effectively than core Facebook. Well, well I think um, to Eugene's point also, at a certain point, these... Um, these social networks have to evolve from just being a proof of work social status to more of a utility function. And I think you've seen that Facebook has done that. So, um, you know, they've done that through kind of like scheduling, through payments, through, um, or I guess really haven't done done payments yet, but scheduling. um, What's the other thing? Like marketplace they're building out. So they're focusing more on like the, the utilization of that network yeah. instead of just as, as a side note, randomly, I'll throw this out there. Um, as somebody who has been stalking random, um, Pilates equipment <laughs> on the internet for his wife, for yourself. Um, yeah. Right. I'll just make this point. I wish for myself, that'd be better. No, I, no, no. She's much better shaped than me. My point was I've been surprised how uh, good Facebook marketplace is for a lot of different random niche stuff. I've seen a few things in my own little world that I'm trying to, you know, find these, $2,000 or $3,000 pieces of plies equipment that are way overpriced. Only pretty much people are only selling them in uh, Miami or Los Angeles. Um, that's just the best marketplace for some reason. Yeah. I mean, we've gotten, we've actually gotten a lot of furniture out of fa- Facebook marketplace. Oh yeah. Uh, we just moved okay. to Portland like uh, less than a year ago and we've been, yeah, just looking for stuff. That's a good point though. Like shifting towards more like a, a broader utility function versus just um, social function. Yeah. I think, yeah, you have like, you know, if we're looking at Facebook as a company, you have core Facebook, which, you know, they've got um, such scale at this point. It's it's really, it's hard to say that it's a cool thing. And so to your point before about, is it really that important to build your social status on Facebook? You know, maybe not, but you have this whole utility side of things, which I think is, um, you know, they're just starting to really monetize. And then obviously you have Instagram, which is, you know, more geared towards, you know, younger demographics and, 
and that social status side of um, of monetization, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, and Aaron, Aaron, to your point, you referenced that uh, Eugene uh, Way's uh, that chart he had of utility versus social status. I think it was, and I, I mean, I think your point you're making, which I totally agree with, is if you can pick one of those two to accelerate or be the mo- be in kind of the pole position at, you know, to the extent you're a utility, that's going to be longer term, you know, a lot better business, more enduring business. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe it's just like a natural life cycle. You know, once you get to a certain size, you know, once your parents start signing up to it, it's no longer hip and cool. And who cares about social status? <laughs> so Josh, you were, you were saying before about like luxury brands, how they've done a really good job. Yeah. And, and, and one thing that I've thought about is, um, I guess, just like on experiences versus products. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, you look on Instagram or sorry, social media has made it so much um, easier for people to highlight, you know, the experiences that they have, you know, the trip that they took. And so people care less about, you know, buying that land, you know, owning that shirt or whatever it is, and more about showing people about the vacations that they took. And so I just wonder, you know, when you look at it from an investing standpoint, whether some of these brands are just, you kind of want to like short brands and long experiences, essentially, but it could also be like short, short, like tangible items. Like, no, I think, I think generally, yes. Uh, you, you just have to dig down, you know, a, a few levels deeper on some of the specific, what's the purpose of some of these luxury brands? Like, for example... You know, a lot of these brands from a socio kind of economic standpoint, they just exist to stratify, you know, consumers against each other. And if you look at countries um, or economies that that are supposed to exist with the absence of class, like for it's a very meritoc- meritocratic. Uh, so China is an example and U.S. is also an example. You know, the opposite would be like India with the caste system. But in this flat kind of societies, you know, people who do really well and accumulate capital, they want to stratify. They want to signal that they have, you know, higher qualities, that they're more important. And one way people do that is luxury. And I think social capital or at least social media, you know, is only an accelerant to that. So some of these companies and businesses have just caught fire. I mean, you look at Hermes and um, LVMH. I mean, these things are comping, you know, 10, 15 percent year over year for three or four years in a row. And it's like accelerating. So, you know, if you can just identify the few niches that are, you know, really doing well and may have some enduring qualities, yeah, probably 95% of the rest of the brands, you know, probably are a short. Josh recommended that I read this book called um, The Luxury Strategy. Oh, I'm sorry. It's like a textbook. Yeah. As societies become more democratized, like we no longer have like powerful kings with divine rights or an explicit class system. The role of like luxury has emerged to reimpose social stratification. Exactly right. Yeah. For for luxury, there there needs to be like a big gap between like the number of people who are aware of the brand and like the number of people who can afford it or appreciate it. And so I think like tied into this point is this idea of like manufactured scarcity and controlled distribution. It's interesting you brought that up because you know, and again, that's five or eight times going on a Eugene Way reference here. But uh, he, you know, one of the other things he mentioned, he he specifically called out technology firms. You know, basically saying that. You know, they can learn from the fashion industry uh, how you know they create manufactured scarcity. Well, now, so much of tech, pick your metric or whatever you know, data or Instagram followers or whatever the metric is. You know, it's right. just increasing abundance. And if they can, if they can channel that, you know, in a different way and figure out how to manufacture their own scarcity, you know, it's a scary to think about. But some of those businesses could get even better. But I think I think if maybe just like taking a step back, if we think about you know physical items. You know, the reason that they provide value outside of their utility. So the reason that you'll pay, 
um, I don't know, $75 for a polo shirt instead of $10 for you know a t-shirt. Aaron, how many polo shirts do you have? <laughs> I've got like... How many polo shirts do you I have own with the horse? You know, in my, wait, in my apartment or in my in my storage locker with all my clothing in Seven? it? Seven? <laughs> Thirty? I have like five polos. I'm obviously making fun of myself too. Yeah, I have way too way too many. The the point I want to make is that like um with any good that we buy, so long as we're paying a price above the utility of that item, we are doing that for most likely a status reason. And I guess I just wondered how much over time as people become more and more aware of lifestyle importance over physical goods, how much you see a shift from physical goods in general to, to lifestyle. And so, so like if I'm going to buy, if I'm going to buy a boat, instead of buying a boat, I can belong to a boat club instead of, instead of buying a private jet. Yeah. I, I could buy. Yeah. I can belong to, was it like JetSmart or what, any one of these apps? And so, and, and then also I think like in, at least in our society, there's become um, a premium on being tech savvy, young, you know, ahead of the curve. And that means that you're not asset heavy and that you are participating in this sharing economy. And so I think like the sharing economy, I guess to wrap it all back is kind of it, the sharing economy should be shifting the way that people think about um, luxury and the way that they spend their, you know, spend their wallet. Aaron, you made a really good point about what you said about um, paying like a, a price that's higher than the actual value of the utility, and that like basically that delta implies like some kind of social status or social capital. I think that's really interesting. I was just trying to think about something that you can actually value, uh, like UJ Way asked about or talked about when you actually have social capital, but you can actually see a transaction where it turns into financial capital or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So you can somehow measure it. And I was thinking about an example of like a bond rating, you know, is something that you pay a smaller value than it's actually worth because, you know, you pay three or five basis points for your credit rating and then you get a 50% or 50 bips, I should say, discount on your interest rate. So it's obviously a good deal. You know, why wouldn't you do it? And I was thinking about for, you know, on the the social side or the consumer side, you know, higher education, you know, advanced degree, Ivy League degree. If you have a degree and you pay for that degree, and obviously there's more to it than that, but a lot of it is money as far as you know, affording it, um, you know, the, the, your lifetime income is like multiples higher than it would be otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. You know, something that I've been following recently is um, electronic arts. So they came out with this apex legends game, which um, it, it's killer. It's, it's doing awesome. You know, they already have 25 million users. They had that in like within a week and there was no marketing spent done on this prior to launch. The only marketing that they did was, to get the key influencers on Twitch to play this game for however long. And then they, they obviously ran some tournaments and stuff like that. And so they, I mean, back to our broader point of our whole conversation, they saw value to Eugene Way's point. They saw arbitrage value and the value of these people, you know, and versus what they're going to give, what they're going to get. I'm sure they're, ROI on whatever, you know, they did to get these followers or these people to, you know, promote was extremely high. You're talking like a several billion dollar jump in in market valuation off of could not have been a, a huge marketing spend on this. And so just to tie it back, uh, <laughs> we feel so far away from this point. I don't know if we'll tie it back to like credit ratings and like the B2B <laughs> side. Should we go back to it or or do you guys feel like? If you have something interesting to say, I mean, we didn't talk about Gartner. 
I was thinking like at first, Gartner sort of reminds me of Moody's in the sense that like, okay, you have like technology vendors on one side, corporate technology buyers on the other. And it's important for the like the vendors to be in the upper right quadrant of Gartner's magic quadrant so that they're considered by the buyers in the same way that it's important for corporate issuers to uh, get the bond rated by Moody's to gain acceptance by investors. But I also think like there are critical differences here as I thought about it more. So like first, Gartner doesn't have this conflicted business model where the vendors are paying for. You know, one, one thing that's interesting to me about uh, Gartner, and we've kind of talked all around it, and I'm definitely not the one to kind of give you a, uh, a just clear thesis on the business model or anything, but as far as our topic overall goes about social yeah. capital or social currency, you know, they're a, gate, they're a gatekeeper um, with, with their, with their uh, conference business, which I think is a business that's really underappreciated generally, but for them especially. You know, their, their industry conferences, I, mean, I don't know, have the stats in front of me, but I would assume they're kind of, you know, number one and number two kind of in their verticals. I mean, and, and what I'm talking about is, you know, when they bring people together, you know, two or three times a year is to have the Gartner people lecture and, you know, these kind of uh, business development or like salespeople, you know, interact with other people. It's a, it's a great little network they have going there. They are a gatekeeper. I think where I would maybe differentiate it from Moody's is that there doesn't seem to be two-sided reinforcement effect. As far as I can tell, maybe I'm wrong on this, but it's like, right. from, from my impression, like Gartner plays more of a uh, consultative role and enterprises make these big mm -hmm. purchasing decisions. And it, maybe it's like less about establishing industry st standards. The buyer cares more about getting an objective, honest, accurate, relative assessment. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it sounds, I mean, to me, it sounds very similar to just like consulting, right? Where it's, you know, they're doing, they're doing the research and providing the qualitative assessment of things. Yeah. And in that sense, it seems like Gartner's model is a whole lot more people intensive and less scalable right. than like Moody's rating business. So like a standards based business model, like Moody scales in a way that that a heavily research intensive service like Gartner doesn't. Like if you think about Moody's investor service, they get paid when the bond is issued. It gets paid when it's just to keep the bond rating. It gets paid when the bond is refinanced. It takes like very little incremental work to like rate a new subordinate, subordinated issue versus senior issue from the same issuer. And so like the ratings process is like pretty formulaic and their fees are pegged to like the size of the debt issue. It's like a massively scalable business model. That's why Moody's investor service has like 60% EBITDA margins, right? Whereas like, are you are you saying that uh, credit ratings are a good business? <laughs> I'm saying it's a phenomenal business. <laughs> it's the best business. This is probably a bad segue, and I'm, it's not going anywhere. But it's crazy how it's crazy how I think coatings the, the coatings industry like it's like almost the same exact industry as credit ratings. And people look at me like I'm like I may, uh, mentioned my wife earlier. Yeah. Like I'm a nut job. It's like the same industry. It's the same oligopoly. It's the same uh, this huge installed base. It's recurring replacement. Every year, I mean, you have um, low capital intensity. You have, like I said, an oligopoly. You have, it's, it's, a, it's basically a really small cost of the overall kind of job or, uh, you know, transaction that's going on. Um, they have uh, pretty much complete pricing power. Uh, they're, vert they're vertically integrated. I mean. Yeah, the, uh, the cost of paint is marginal relative to the asset being protected, the house. A contractor's not going to go with a shoddy brand just to save a few bucks right. and have to repaint it or risk reputational damage. And the and the reinvestment runway is fantastic. I mean, they can't they can't like double their store count, but they can keep growing the store count for like five or ten years easily. Do Do you guys want to move on to um, rate ratings as as a facilitator as it relates to the consumer space, so like TripAdvisor, Yelp? Yeah, I guess I can just kick it off and just say, 
So, you know, Trip and Yelp are obviously both in the same business of, you know, providing reviews. It seems that Trip has been more successful in maintaining the, the authenticity of of its um, of the reviews that it has on its on its site, whereas I think Yelp um, is kind of infiltrated by a lot of people doing like mm-hmm. self promotions or actually mm-hmm. you know hating on their competitors. And I don't I don't I don't know exactly what his whatever it is I don't I don't know why that difference exists, but it seems to be like kind of. A, a fundamental reason why like people rely on trip a lot more than Yelp and in part probably yeah. also um, relates to the valuation of the company as well, because you know, it's, it's obviously been a lot harder for Yelp to monetize its user base than, than for trip, for instance, like one other thing is also like trip is actually, I guess, mm-hmm. going back to Eugene's argument um, or paper trip is more embedded in the actual transactions, right? So you, when you go on there to look at a hotel or a flight, you can actually book it through the trip trip website and that kind of embeds them into the ecosystem. Whereas Yelp is just kind of sitting on top, providing you know a review platform, and so I don't know if maybe if that creates some. I'm not sure how I can relate it back to, um, you know, kind of currencies and ratings necessarily. But one comment I'd make, just thinking about you know put our investor hat on or whatever, um, it's interesting to me these businesses Trip and Yelp, you can contrast them against some other businesses in the same way. They just don't seem as a business. I mean, they don't seem to be. They don't seem to be viable businesses on their own. If you think about where like really good reviews add value and like a part of a good business ecosystem, they're not standalone services. Uh, like they're Amazon, right? I mean, the Amazon reviews, that's one of their, one of the things that really jumpstarted the value of people who could have trust and they could, you know, buy stuff online because somebody wrote it up and they knew that person, or at least that person had a good um, credibility or whatever. But I was going to say, and also contrast it against Gartner, for example. You know, Gartner uh, the making the same point about a, a business model that touches the customer in multiple dimensions being more valuable. You know, the the events business is a really good business, but if you look at like any of the publicly traded events businesses companies, they're all just shit, um, or pretty much so. And the ones that do well, like Reed uh, or Gartner, are kind of just embedded events businesses as part of like a larger ecosystem. I've wondered the same thing, whether with lead gen companies like Yelp, TripAdvisor, Trivago, Zillow, there might just there might be a limit to how far you can scale that those business models, especially if you don't own your own traffic. And, you know, do you just end up getting squeezed by Google and Facebook one way or another? Will you just be spending 40 to 60% of your revenue on sales and marketing? So maybe TripAdvisor and Zillow have realized this, and that's what prompted those companies to vertically integrate down into facilitating actual transactions. Yelp is Mm -hmm. doing this too, though they've had business model issues as well, uh, where they basically transpose the yellow book revenue model onto the internet, cold calling small businesses into these um, expensive year long marketing contracts. That obviously doesn't work because Google and Facebook have redefined what ad buying looks like in, um, in the online era for small businesses. Um, you know, self-service, small dollar amounts, no contracts. So for, um, for TripAdvisor, for TripAdvisor, they made a change to uh, the interface where um, they introduced this social feed in, in late 2018, where they kind of moved to a yeah, newsfeed format where oh. you're basically getting travel guidance from various experts, um, National Geographic, Eater, Jet Setter in addition to the content from friends on Facebook. 
And so this feed really just starts to look like Facebook for, for travel. It's like they peeled the, the travel vertical off of Facebook where you're just shown uh, a ton of media from influencers trying to get clicks. And hopefully that's not no annoying to you because you're looking for advice on travel and experiences. So, uh, you know, they're going the inspiration route rather than just search. It's a, it's an up funnel move. And, um, where, you know, they're, they're kind of going beyond being just a tool for proactive research because, um, yeah, I mean, it just seems like the utility of reviews and even user generated content at some point diminishes. I mean, as a shopper, you don't need a hundred different user reviews for, for every listing. Um, yeah, in fact, I was, I was checking out some hotels on uh, booking.com just um, earlier today. And some of these hotel reviews, I mean, there's, there's mounds and mounds of them with ratings across all these different dimensions. It's, I mean, it's pretty damn good. So I don't know, after a certain point, maybe you've, you've kind of um, reached the point of uh, diminishing returns when it comes to reviews. And so by taking the, um, the inspiration angle, you know, they can differentiate themselves from broader uh, up funnel peers like Google and Facebook. And then also with, um, with, uh, some of these more down funnel players who who are who are also uh, gathering reviews, and then with Yelp, um, they're they're a marketing channel for all sorts of verticals, right? Like travel experiences, home services, food delivery, and in each of those verticals, you have highly targeted peer plays, whether that be Angie's List, TripAdvisor, or Uber Eats. And you know, may, maybe one of the problems with going too broad is that they're already too up funnel players who go broad. They're called Google and Facebook. Mm. And so, you know, you might not be able to monetize your traffic as effectively as a highly verticalized site might because, you know, maybe there's just not enough differentiation. Right. Not to mention just the, you know, direct best of breed competition well, that you have you, in each of those did, verticals. You and I were talking about this before about um, SaaS companies where it's like you've got these new pure plays that are just taking share from kind of like uh, larger competitors who aren't as, aren't as focused. For people, maybe it's just easier to say, okay, you know, I want to look at, um, you know, if I, instead of, you know, for Angie's List, if it's, what was Angie's? It's like home stuff, right? Like home repair. Is that right? I think that's a really good business, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It's like personal contractors that will come into your home and like hang blinds or paint or. Yeah, so you just have more trust in them because that's all they do. That's definitely an embedded rating system inside of that. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. So like Josh, I think you made a point in one of your older tweets about, I don't remember the exact phrasing you used, but I think you said something to the effect of... Was it funding secured? <laughs> <laughs> that was that one? Oh, sorry. <laughs> but there was no. one where you, where you, I think you said, um, like, why play something indirectly when you can play it directly? Oh, Yes. Yeah, I used to have that my pinned tweet, and people just hated that for some reason. And I was absolutely, I was absolutely a reflection of my my learning curve and my journey understanding the OTAs for what it's worth. How, how do you mean? In real simple terms, the way they were talking about things, uh, consumer attention and top of funnel uh, and advantages, and you know, social networks and these types of things or whatever. As, as far as it re relates to the OTAs, I just think that. It's just a business model that just is screaming to be disintermediated by existing players above and below them. And in a model, in an industry that is rapidly transitioning offline to online, I mean, yeah. Um, 
growth can mask a lot of weaknesses in your overall business model. And right. yeah, I think that's just now kind of showing up. And I, I'm, I'm definitely not trying to pick it on any of the, the booking.com longs, you know, today, cause they had a rough day today and I feel bad for them. Um, <laughs> but they have a bad day, frankly, every earnings day because they always provide guidance that they, yeah, no, I just think yeah. they're going to be disintermediated. I think, I don't know how. Yeah. I mean, I think I was thinking about something similar to that. Like what, what do I do when I'm looking for a bar or a restaurant? I'll open Google maps, search the map for exactly. a venue yep. in a part of the town that I want to hang out in. And I'll just kind of go from Google, there. Google maps is another random thing is uh, Google maps is by far the most underappreciated part of the Google thesis. That's just my opinion. Yeah. I think that is like one of their most valuable properties that they own. Um, and it's frustrating. I don't own Google, mm -hmm. but if you're a Google shareholder, I think it's frustrating that they haven't really accelerated that. But if you look at it and you're making the point, Dave, that you obviously do, I mean, they, they like, every time I look at it, every few months, they increase the type of content and stuff they have on there. It used to just be like a random building structure. You can kind of see the shape of it. And now it's like the name of the building. And now there's like a review of the building right. that somebody wrote and it's, yeah. So it's like, yeah, they're clearly, they're clearly picking up in that space. That's their that's their bridge. That's their bridge, by the way, to augmented reality. Right. I was gonna. Say, I was just gonna say on, on yeah. Google. I mean, like, yeah, everyone talks about YouTube. Um, yeah, it's kind of like the uh, kind of hidden asset or whatever. But um, it's a good point that Google Maps has really not been monetized properly yet. But to your point, also, do you I mean do you know what the largest streaming service in the world is? YouTube. I mean, they have so many gems in their portfolio, and they're. Uh, it's a frustrating, I think, situation as a stockholder, but lots of good businesses. I'm, a, I'm an EA shareholder, and I started watching Twitch to just kind of follow this EA um, or the Apex um, saga, and I've kind of become hooked. <laughs> oh, like as a as a viewer, like streaming viewer of other people playing games. Yeah, it's actually okay. a really entertaining form of, um, or it's, it's a great form of entertainment. I mean, yeah. I, I actually enjoy watching other people play video games, which is don't don't include that in the podcast. This is this like are we in a are we in a twelve step program right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're obviously you're not alone. I don't know the stats, right? But I mean, there's you know hundreds of millions of people that feel the same way. There's this guy Shroud who has like I don't know seven million people subscribe to him, yeah. which means that seven million people pay like five bucks a month or something. Bridging this uh, back. And, and maybe an attempt to talk about the broader topic or just make a reference to it. Um, and again, and also like this is so five, six, seven, number nine, Eugene Way count for me. Um, he, he made the point where he said, you know, if you're looking at value connect uh, between kind of social capital versus financial capital, like the clearest place you can see it right now is in gaming. And there's a lot of ways to, um, there's a lot of parts to that, why that is, I think, but that's, it's a really good point what you're talking about. Uh, you have this ecosystem of viewers. So attention is valuable. You have these people who inside of games, you know, now the games are free to play, but you go in the game and you're incentivized like socially in the game to like stratify yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To like make sure you spend $10 to, like, to buy have like, a cool pair of uh, cool offset. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's like, and people are paying money for that, for the better spaceship or the, you know, the better, like you just described. So, at least EA used to be kind of, uh, there's kind of like a pay for performance type thing. And and now it's no longer, at least with Apex, it's not pay for performance. It's pay for a skin that has no impact on game performance, but it's just, it's just a social set, like a social perspective. And then right. um, 
going to Eugene's point, like when you're talking about like creating value within the social ecosystem, you don't want a system where people can just pay to get ahead. You want it to where you want it to where everyone wins or loses a game, wins or loses a game based on you know their own ability. And so right. it almost makes the system a better system while also allowing people to spend money in other ways that gives them own, like gives them a separate type of fulfillment, essentially. I mean, I read an article about like the metal, I think it was called like the metal world or something where it's basically, it was talking about how Fortnite is so um, valuable. And the reason isn't because it's like the best game out there, but it's the best digital property out there where people can go on and interact in a social manner digitally. And so um, this was exemplified by, um, there was like a, a concert, I think it was. Oh yeah. Marsh, the marshmallow. Or something. Yeah. This yeah. marshmallow yeah. concert, 10, exactly. 10 million people paid to attend this concert digitally, even though you could have just like watched it for free. Oh, I didn't know they paid in minutes to get yeah, there. Wow. I believe they paid a minutes and they're that there, means- you know, showing off their dance moves that they had to pay for in order to like, you know, do that dance move. Right. And so it's just creating this like social strata within, you know, virtual reality, virtual reality. It's, it's ready player one. Yeah. So, well, I guess, let me, let me ask you guys about something. It's it's a little bit of a tangent. You know, you know how we were talking about how companies who who are rating space or standard space can, uh, can have their moats sort of, decay based on the underlying ecosystem moving around yeah i i guess i was thinking uh about like the the index provider so like msci who kind of create indices against which like many trillions of assets are benchmarked yeah and Mm -hmm. this isn't a near-term risk for s p and msci just to be clear like those companies are doing great and they're actually benefiting from this move to passive instruments but so i'm just spitballing here but I mean, if you look at if you look at financials, I mean, we're all obviously all in love with the credit rating agencies, but I mean, <laughs> Jesus, yeah, S and P S and P Global, I mean, uh, index business is even done better. Yeah, it's got like seventy percent. You can run a portfolio of businesses, and some of those businesses are better than your credit ratings businesses. <laughs> yeah, so they make money in three yeah. ways, right? First, they 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 kind of charge basis points on the AUM of like ETFs yeah. that are that are linked to them. Second, but if you they, if you're willing to bet on the passive trend, I mean, yeah. So I guess this is this is sort of where I'm going with this is that so there there's been these these like massive inflows into like index funds and ETFs and and because of that there's been sort of a, a shifting power to a few scale players who can actually make money on like five basis points, right? So it's like seventy base seventy percent of like the global ETF assets are now claimed by BlackRock's State Street and Vanguard. And that sort of mm-hmm. changes the bargaining power of the players within this value chain. And so like they increasingly have clout to sort of push back on fees from index providers and also in a way like disintermediate them by creating their own indices. And so and they're already doing this to some extent. And, Wait, and Dave, now, are you saying that those ETF providers are saying like screw you to S&P and they're just going to create their own market index? I've not, I've not, I've not noticed this. Yeah, yeah. So they're doing it in sort of in parallel, huh. and so, and so, like, if you look at a different point in the supply chain, like Intercontinental and Nasdaq, are like less so pitching themselves as exchange operators and more so as like technology providers to this ecosystem. Right. Yeah. And so, like, Intercontinental is like working with BlackRock to create to like craft these new benchmarks. Right. And so, are you talking about ICE? Yeah, exactly, ICE. 
I think like one of the nice things about like owning a benchmark or a standard is that you can monetize that same thing like multiple times. Moody's Investor Services monetizes the ratings where they charge to the issuer, but then it also monetizes the research that goes in the ratings where they like charge the yeah. investor. And Intercontinental Ice, they they own the IP, for example, for like Brent. Like the Brent futures are like one of the two global benchmark instruments for like hedging crude oil exposure. And so Intercontinental, they monetize that once by collecting the transaction fees from, you know, Brent futures traded on their exchanges, but then they like charge fees for the data that spills off of that trading activity. And I guess like index providers like MSCI S&P, that's another example of this. They get paid like basis points on the AUM of ETFs, but then they also get paid fees on exchange trade derivatives tied to those ETFs. They also get paid like subscription fees from like media outlets and data data aggregators. Absolutely. I mean, it's the assets under management thing. I mean, if you yeah. can just have some confidence in that, I, I have the same concern. When I look at those businesses, that's the same reason I don't. And, and for the kind of the, some of the points you brought up, that's why I don't own MSCI independently. Yeah. I'd rather own that business inside of a portfolio to have some kind of shelter. Yeah. I think the passive trend, I don't I don't see any reason why it's gonna it's gonna change. Yeah. And by the way, I'm all, I'm down to my last beer here. Oh yeah, I, I've got an endless supply on my end. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you guys both drinking beer or something else? Yeah, just beer. Wish I had some Jameson. That's my drink of choice. Liquor stores are hard to find in Portland. Ir- Irish whiskey. Yeah. How did you how did you come to love uh, Irish whiskey? That's kind of an interesting little niche. Uh, because it's cheap and delicious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Have you seen this? Have you guys read about this or familiar with this company called Sazerac? No, no. What's that? Yeah, it's based in New Orleans. It's this family company. It's private. Oh, it's they like basically company, buy right? like every shitty garbage liquor brand that like gets sold by any like large cap like Diageo or Brown Foreman. Like anything they want to sell, Sazerac <laughs> just like buys. It's the, I don't know. I, yeah. I'm really curious about it. So the interesting thing, so beer has gone through this like um, craft yeah. um, phase where like craft yeah. is basically taking share from everyone else. And you're starting and to see that more now in liquors. I'm a, I'm a Brown Foreman shareholder, so yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Josh, on Brown Foreman, you know, there's this consensus FinTwit view. You know, why would you buy Brown Foreman, which is growing by mid-single digits for 30 times right. earnings when you can buy Google or Facebook for... 25 times earnings. I mean, I've, yep. I've probably seen the statement made so many times. It's just become parody at this point. I would say the first thing I would introduce is the concept of terminal values. So like Facebook, like what's the terminal value? Maybe it's a zero. Maybe it's not. Maybe Facebook becomes the whatever the thing is in Ready Player One. Uh, what's that universe called? The multiverse or whatever that the Oasis. It's called the Oasis. Maybe Facebook becomes the Oasis and it's like literally the earth for augmented reality and it becomes like the, the entire New York stock exchange is just Facebook, but probably not. The, it, you know, the permanent value could also be zero. That's the kind of variability versus like when I think of businesses like Brown Foreman, for example, right. And I don't think Tom Russo said this, but he'd probably agree with that to the extent you can, and your whole, your whole portfolio shouldn't be this way, but to the extent you can find s- stuff called boring stores of value, like those things appeal to me. Um, and that's that's what they are. I mean, uh, Brown and Foreman is a business where, and back to the terminal value, I think it's a very stable or term or growing terminal value. Uh, and if you look at the near term results, I mean, maybe maybe they're going to have volatility from time to time. But I mean, American whiskey is a category for growth internationally, like outside the U.S. It's like 
I don't know what the penetration does, but it's extremely small. I mean, their runway for, for selling more cases to places in Europe and to Asia and Africa and Mexico and Latin America, et cetera, is like the runway is as long as anything I can, I know of that exists. And you can look at these charts too. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not definitely um, an expert on valuation, the McKinsey textbook of what's what, but um, if you just do a plot kind of X, Y axis on kind of long-term growth expectation versus ROIC, if you have a 30 or 40% return on tangible capital right, and you're growing your business for 30 or 40 years, like organically, like at least 5%, probably more, the multiple is high. Exactly. This idea of terminal value gets overlooked. I mean, Google and Facebook are so ascendant today that it seems almost impossible to consider how they might fall from grace. Um, the growth rates, the platform dominance, the scale economies, the various network effects, that that's all stuff that we see today. But, you know, it's worth at least considering that major platform shifts do happen. That's and right. That those platforms are uh, pushed into existence by new technologies and form factors that the platforms themselves are hard to predict. The winners of those platforms are hard to predict. And you're you're sort of multiplying several sub one probabilities together. Now, of course, if you want to argue that AR is the next big platform and that Google with their maps will come to dominate AR, well, great. But, you know, make that specific did you, case. Did you guys read uh, Zuckerberg's 2015 email? That was, that was fantastic. It got released like kind of to the publicly, maybe on TechCrunch or something like three or four weeks ago. Um, but basically it was four or five pages and it was Zuck's thesis on why the next computing platform will revolve around augmented reality, how Facebook sees themselves potentially integrating into that and how that shaped some of their recent acquisitions and where they're you know, spending their capital. The biggest takeaway was basically, he said the existing paradigm, the models that those work on which is basically controlling your ecosystem, he said he thought that was going to invert and change in, in, in alternate reality. And he wanted to be in control, not necessarily, he wanted to control the whole thing vertically, you know, if he could, but, but he's like, I'm really more focused on the apps. Um, so it's something, it's, it's to your point there, this platforms, and Aaron says something, a topic you brought up earlier. I think it's extremely interesting what we've seen recently with a few forms of media content the initial stages of disintermediating themselves from um, iOS or from uh, Google Play. And that the first one was Fortnite. Fortnite said, you know, right. we don't want to pay your 30% tax anymore to be an app on your ecosystem. We'll just create our own thing and people will come to us. And they did it. And mm-hmm. they did it. And it was wild. And I mean, that's a big yeah, deal. 125 million people. <laughs> so what do you guys think? Should we... Uh... Yeah, thanks everyone for for listening here. It was a pleasure and an honor to have Bluegrass here on the podcast with us. And hopefully we can do something similar to this again. And uh, yeah, I'll put contact information in the show notes. Thanks again.